Before we get to Matthew, Diego, the Kaleo team that uh, will be spending the week there uh, on the ground learning uh, from Kaleo Ministries, which is a, a nationwide organization, does a lot of really cool things, particularly in, in urban areas, but uh, learning about how to care for immigrants, the refugee community, the homeless community. Uh, and, and while those topics are important and kind of hot button issues, the, the deeper thing that we're really hoping to come out of this week is for uh, some, uh, some learning and some leadership back here. For how do we do uh, how, do, how do we serve in a similar kind of way with a similar posture in our community here in Davis uh, and in Woodland and in Yolo County? So you can be praying for them for safety. They should be getting there for, uh, in time for dinner tonight. Uh, my wife is helping lead the trip, so you can pray for me. I'm solo parenting all week, so that's going to be an adventure of its own. Um, and then again, just pray for them to bond as a team and for the, them to just have a really sweet time of, of learning and serving together this week. All right, I want to pause here for a moment. I want to pray uh, for that team. I also want to pray at today's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to you dads out there. I want to pray about that here for just a second, and then we will get into our text um, after that. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do uh, come before you this morning grateful. Uh, grateful for this day, for um, the new season that we are in as we move into summer. Grateful, as always, for your grace and your mercy, your great uh, saving work in the world and in our lives. Father, this morning we pray for our team that's headed to San Diego right now. Would you keep them safe as they drive and travel down south? Would you give them a really sweet time together this week as they get to know each other better, uh, as they get to serve together, uh, and as they get to learn and experience your kingdom bursting forth in this world in a whole new way in a totally different context. May it be a really rich time, uh, a time that inspires them uh, to lead our community in, in new ways and new postures of serving here uh, in Davis and the surrounding area. And then God, we do uh, come to you this morning. It is Father's Day. We are grateful that you are our Father, that you are a good Father, but also we acknowledge that today is a day that could be filled with joy or filled with uh, pain, depending on our, our relationship with our earthly father. Some of us, we don't even know our dads. Others of us, maybe we have lost our dad or we're estranged from our father. Um, wherever we might be this morning, God, would you remind us again of the truth that you are a good father. And that whatever our experience has been here on earth, you love us and care for us. You died for us. You sacrificed for us so that we could be in right relationship with you. God, we pray for those, again, who have heavy hearts. Would we mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice today? We pray all of this in Jesus' strong name. And everybody said, amen. All right, if you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 19. And if you would like a physical copy of the Bible, raise your hand and someone on our team should uh, be able to come around and make sure you have one of those. And as you're finding that, I want to begin with a quote there's a new book that came out recently by a guy named David Zoll. The title of the book is Seculosity, How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance Became Our New Religion. Very long title, very interesting title, right? Now, here's, here's his description of this book. Okay? David Zoll writes that at the heart of our current moment lies a universal yearning. And this is really interesting, a universal yearning not to be happy or respected so much as enough, a yearning to be enough, what religions call righteous, 
to fill the void left by religion, we look to all sorts of everyday activities from eating and parenting and dating and voting for the identity, the purpose, and the meaning once provided on Sunday morning. In our striving, we are chasing a sense of enoughness. But it remains ever out of reach, and the effort and anxiety are burning us out. This is very interesting to me. I think this is really true. He hits on some very deep things, even in just this brief description of his book. There, there is this reality in which we are a more secular culture, a less religious culture, and yet we have these same yearnings that need to be satisfied in some way. This deeply human quest to know, am I enough? Am I good enough? Who am I? Why am I here? here? These foundational human questions of meaning and being. I don't know, how many of you are familiar with the, the phenomenon of big data or big data? I don't even know the right way of saying that, okay? This is where, like, we quantify just about anything and everything in our life, right? I wonder if one of the reasons why we see this rise uh, in data collection, this phenomenon of big data, is because of these questions. Because of our yearning to be able to answer these questions. Am I good? Am I doing enough? Am I doing the right things? A couple of years ago now, Sports Illustrated ran a really interesting article looking at the dramatic rise in participation of physically challenging events. Okay? Events like marathons, ultra marathons, triathlons, tough mutters, even things like CrossFit, right? Huge explosion in this sort of activity in the last decade. And so the author is kind of looking at why is this? Why are more and more people into these things? And they give a whole bunch of different reasons. Everything from we're a more health-conscious culture at this point to good marketing around these events to uh, this desire to have a sense of adventure, even social media. We see our friend doing something like this, and we think, oh, man, that guy can run a marathon. I can run a marathon, right? (laughs) Now, this phenomenon, I definitely got caught up in it uh, when I was living in Durango, Colorado. Here's a couple pictures of Durango. Beautiful town in southwest Colorado. Everybody there does outdoor activities. It's the mountain biking capital of the world. There's a river that runs through it. So in the summer, people are boating uh, and rafting and all this stuff. And then in the winter, of course, it's very close to, the, to, to lots of great places to ski. So everyone does outdoor activities. And I felt like, oh, I should do something. I should get into something uh, since I live here now and I you know, want to be a part of the community. So I saw that there was a, a series of trail uh, runs. And I thought, well, I like to run, and I, you know, I kind of fancied myself a bit of a runner at that stage of life. So I was like, I could do this. It's like six races over the course of the year, and it was amazing. They like keep track of it and ranked you by age and, and, and uh, level of skill, all this kind of stuff. And so I was like, this is great. This will be a really fun thing for me to do. So a little quick story about my very first race. I, I show up at this thing. It was a seven-mile uh, run that kind of went up into the mountains, up into the forest, and then back down out into this meadow. And I'd never done a race like this before, so I get there, and I'm trying to figure out, like, how do I pin this number to my shirt? And I'm, you know, looking around, like, oh, man, that guy's stretching. Maybe, like, I should stretch. I didn't really know what to do. But I see that, oh, the Durango High School cross-country team is here. And I watch them warming up, and they're, like, moving around in this pack of teenagers. And I'm like, I have a goal now, all right? My goal is to beat the cross-country team, Okay. So the race begins, and probably half a mile into it, I realize I'm not beating the cross-country team, okay? <laughs> so I, I kind of settle into my, my rhythm, and I'm just enjoying the reality of, like, running in the mountains in this beautiful place. 
Uh, but as we get to the end, again, you come down the mountain, the trail opens up into this meadow, and I can see maybe 100 yards in front of me is one of the girls on the cross-country team. And I think, oh man, I can still redeem myself, right? So I think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run her down, I'm going to chase her down, and I still have time before we get to the finish line to catch her and satisfy at least a portion of my goal. So I pick up my pace, and I start, uh, you know, closing the gap between the two of us. And we get to one of the final bends before we get to the, the, the home stretch to the finish line. And out of nowhere, still don't know how this guy got to this particular spot, but out of nowhere, this guy pops up on the side of the course, and he's very clearly, like, this girl's coach or her dad. And he's, like, cheering her on. I don't remember what her name is, but he's, we'll call her Molly. He's like, come on, Molly, you can do this. Finish strong. You got this. And he's like really pumping her up and being very encouraging. And I'm like, oh, that's really nice. Uh, and, and so he's, he's, he's cheering for her and he sees me closing the gap behind her. All right. And so he's cheering her on. And he, he looks at me once and he, he like says another encouraging thing to her. And he looks at me again and he goes, Molly, bury that guy. <laughs> and, and, and she totally did. Okay, left me in the dust at that point. All right, now. That sort of humbling experience aside, I was hooked on this, and I, I ran the rest of those trail races and had a really great time doing that. Now, back to this article for just a moment, all right? All the different reasons for the explosion of these kinds of events. The most fascinating part of that article to me was a comment made by a race organizer who said this, okay? He said, people love these events because they allow us to quantify our fun, People love these events because they allow us to quantify our fun. Once again, we have this deep, deep desire for affirmation, to be able to answer these deep questions. Am I doing enough? Am I good enough? Now, I want us to keep these questions in mind as we turn our attention to the text today. We're in Matthew chapter 19, and we have kind of a lengthy section to make our way through. So we're going we're gonna to take this in a couple of big chunks. But Matthew chapter 19, we begin in verse 13, and if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, there are elements of this first scene that should sound very familiar to you. Matthew 19, verse 13, the children brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them, but the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Now, <clears throat> at this point, again, if you've been with us for most of this journey, you should, you should see by now that everything in Matthew comes back around. It was just two weeks ago that we saw the disciples ask Jesus this really awkward question, right? Which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And how did Jesus answer that question? He brings a child, and he puts the child in front of them and says, if you want to be great, you must become like a child. Now we've also seen this word rebuke a couple of times before as well. Matthew uses it back in, in chapter 8 to describe the word that, that Jesus uses to calm the storm. They're on this boat in the middle of this lake. There's this huge storm that comes up. Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves. And then he used it again in Matthew 16 to describe how Peter reprimands Jesus, Jesus, for the first time, giving his disciples some insight into how the, the mission is going to unfold. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be uh, put on trial. I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, 
right? That will never happen to you. Now, what is going on here? Why do the disciples use such a harsh word to speak to, the, the, to these children and the people bringing these children to Jesus? Just a couple of chapters ago, they, they know to be great is to be like a child. What is going on with them in this scene? Again, they are struggling to move from their old paradigm into Jesus' new paradigm, the kingdom of heaven. We saw a couple weeks ago in this old paradigm, the, a rabbi, a teacher, a leader would, would not stoop down and hang out with children. It was unbecoming. It was embarrassing. It was potentially even shameful. And we talked then about how our, our culture has very different values, and Davis in particular. We revere kids, right? No one would consider it shameful to pause and take a few moments uh, to hang out with some kids. But I think that this scene still pushes very much on us and some of our deep values. I think if this scene were unfolding today, the disciples or whatever the version of the disciples would be, the issue here would be with Jesus pausing, wasting his time potentially, and doing something that seemed to be unproductive. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior of the world, after all, hitting pause on his mission to hang out for a moment with some kids. This uh, pushes on our anxiety of being. Remember these deep questions of meaning and being. What are we doing here? Who am I? Our anxiety of being. Am I valuable or worthy if I'm not being productive or efficient? Am I valuable or worthy if I am not being productive or efficient? Jesus, in spending time with these kids, is deliberately being inefficient, right? He's supposed to be moving towards Jerusalem, getting ready to save the world, and he pauses to play, basically. Many of us, we fill the lack, we fill the void in our lives with productivity, whether that's pursuing a degree or work or other accomplishments. We're constantly trying to prove either to ourselves or to someone else that we are worthy. I struggle with this, and ironically, I struggle with this in relationship to my kids. They're so good at playing, and they're always doing something, some Lego thing, building some fort, and they're like, Dad, come play with us. Come play with us. And I'm like, I got dishes to wash. Or, or you know, I got a to-do list that I need to check off. I got things that I need to be doing, right? I don't have time to get in this fort and, and be a whatever you want me to be in this moment. And then I have these little ahas like, oh, no, like, I need to, I, I need to stop. And I need to pause here. I need to hang out with my kids. They consistently invite me into a far less productive way of life. All the parents said amen, right? <laughs> so the question here for us, this first scene, I think it forces us to ask, when was the last time we were deliberately inefficient? Or we were deliberately unproductive? What happened in that moment? How did you feel? Were you okay with that? Did it bring up this anxiety so, of being? Now, the next scene has a ton in it for us to consider. So look at verse 16. Right after this, Jesus moves on. A man came up to him and asked him, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Okay, huge question, right? We learn in a couple of verses that this is a young man. And he approaches Jesus by calling him teacher, which is a good start. This is a, a, a recognition of Jesus' authority. But also note, this man does not call him master or lord. And there's a big difference between those approaches. 
He asked Jesus about a good thing that he must do. And this, to use some of our ongoing language, this is an orthopraxy question. Remember this word, orthopraxy, right action? He wants to know, what is the thing that I'm supposed to do? What is the right action that I need to take? Give me a checklist of behaviors that I need to perform in order to be a good person. Then at the end of the the question, he says that what he's looking for is eternal life. Now, this is a tough one, I think, for church people to wrap their minds around. He is not asking a question about life after death. This is a question about what does it mean to live a good life, to live an eternal kind of life. This question was a very common first century Jewish question. It was tied to their hopes for a Messiah and for the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. The man wants to know essentially this. When the Messiah comes in the age that is to come, and that's sort of the idea of eternal life, this next age, this next era where the Messiah is on the throne ruling the kingdom of Israel, who are going to be the people who are rewarded? Who are going to be the people who have positions of power and influence? How do I get in that game? Now this question, what does a good life look like? Not necessarily a bad question, but once again asked from the totally wrong paradigm. I think this helps us understand Jesus' response in verse 17. Why do you ask me about what is good? It's kind of a weird way to respond to that question, right? Jesus says there's only one who is good. And then he says, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Now what Jesus does here in this answer is reorient this guy into the new paradigm. Jesus forces the man to consider not just the information that he's going to receive, but also the person to whom he is asking the question. Only God is good and you are asking me what is good. Jesus wants him to see the connection. Do you see what you're asking? Do you understand who you are asking this question of? So kind of a big sort of truth bomb right there, right? Only God is good. You're asking me what is good. You're equating me with God. I am God. And then Jesus follows that up with this very generic answer. You want life? Keep the commandments. In our context, this would be like asking Jesus, what does a good life look like? And him saying something like, well, just don't be a jerk. It's like, okay, That's nice, but there's got to be more to it than that, right? The man not satisfied with this answer. And so he asked this follow-up question. Well, which ones, which commandments am I supposed to be following? Now, the right answer in their first century Jewish context was all of them. All the commandments. Now, that's really interesting to keep in the back of your mind as you look at what Jesus says next. He says, You shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is basically the second half of the Ten Commandments and then another commandment from the book of Leviticus. All right, very good list, a lot of nice things there, right? This is also a very incomplete list. These are all commandments that have to do with how we interact with People. And to use language we've been developing here at Discovery, these are all about right relationship with people. Again, very important, very critical to the kingdom of right relationships. But look at what commandments Jesus leaves out. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make idols and worship them. 
Don't misuse or disrespect God's name. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. All the commandments about right relationship with God. I think this is why the man's next question is so important. He says, all these I have kept, right? Murder, adultery, stealing. All these I have kept. What do I still lack? This is maybe the quintessential 21st century question for someone who is considering the spiritual life. What do I still lack? Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're telling the truth. This is what we might call the anxiety of meaning. This is the anxiety of I have the education and the job and the success and I do some nice things for people, but I still feel empty inside. This is having access to the entire world in the palm of your hand and still feeling restless and lonely. This is I've gained the world, but I feel like I'm losing my soul. Jesus responds with a very clear and tangible challenge. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Gets right to the heart of the issue with this guy. Sell all your stuff, give it to the poor, come follow me. In other words, destroy your idols, destroy the things that are preventing right relationship with God, and then follow me. Now, a quick thought about the word perfect. This is, again, another thing that's come around again, going all the way back to Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount. Remember there, we learned that this idea of perfect perfection is not about some sort of Greek platonic moral purity. This is about relationship. It is a relational word. And what Jesus is saying to this young man is right relationship with God and with people is right here. Is right here. It is not far off. But you need to destroy these idols and then come follow me. Discover the truth that those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now when the man hears this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. He couldn't do it. Could not let go of his idols, at least in that moment. He cannot let it go. Now, we've seen at various uh, moments in this journey that there are no formulas in the kingdom of heaven. There's no three-step process that every single person must go through. Peter's journey is different from Matthew. Matthew's journey different from the Canaanite woman. The Canaanite woman's journey different from this man we see in our scene today. So there's one way in which we need to read this from a broad perspective, all right? It's not a requirement for every single one of us to sell our stuff in order to be a disciple of Jesus. I think reading it this way, we need to ask some really sort of big, broad questions. What is the lack that we feel? What are our idols? If we were to have a similar conversation to Jesus, what would he challenge us to do? Would he challenge you to quit your job? Would he challenge you to stop drinking so much? Would he challenge you to avoid another hookup or superficial dating relationship? Would he challenge you to get out of your comfortable social circle and make friends with someone who is not like you? What idol would Jesus go after if you were to have this conversation with him right now? And yet, and yet, the other side of this, I think there's a tension that we need to hold here. The other side of this comes in what Jesus says next. We cannot ignore these words. Truly, I tell you, and he's speaking now to his disciples. 
It is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. For the majority of us in this room, these are very challenging words, right? Very sobering words. For American Christians in particular, wealth, security, and comfort are massive idols that must be confronted. Now, there's a bunch of different interpretations as to Jesus' words here in verses 23 and 24. Is this literal? Is this another example of exaggeration and hyperbole? There's also this bit about how there was a gate in the wall around Jerusalem that was called the Eye of the Needle, and you couldn't get a, it was small, you couldn't get a camel through it without taking stuff off of it. And so is this a, a metaphor or a picture that Jesus is trying to paint? Lots of interesting interpretations of this, but I would challenge us. I would challenge us to take these words for what they are. If you want to be serious about following Jesus in our context, 21st century Americans, you have to wrestle with your relationship to wealth and resources. The clear teaching of Jesus all throughout the book of Matthew is that pursuing wealth and allowing money to become an idol, it will come at the expense of of your soul. And we did a teaching on this back in January, Matthew chapter 6, part of the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to go back and and listen to that, I welcome you to go back and, and do that. Now, the anxiety of meaning, the questions that it raises, the questions of enough, often lead us to economic answers. These are very tangible, easy ways to measure success. I must be doing it right, right? My bank account is healthy. Things must be going well for me. And this was no different in the disciples' time either. For them, it was obvious. The wealthy were clearly honorable in God's eyes. They were at the front of the line, so to speak. Of course, they would be the greatest in the kingdom. And so this raises a question for them. Peter, in particular, asked, well, what does this mean for us? We've given up everything. How can we be saved, uh, you know, if this is the case? Or who can be saved if this is the case? And Jesus reminds them that in the kingdom of heaven, all of their needs will be met, both here and in the life to come. And then he ends this particular scene with the great inversion principle of the kingdom of heaven. Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. The heroes of this new paradigm, the heroes of the kingdom, will be surprising. They will not look like those who we expect to be at the front of the line. In fact, those who we expect to be at the front will actually be at the back. The things that we typically associate with success and blessing are not going to be the same things that are celebrated in the kingdom of heaven. The first will be those who trust Jesus, who trust his economy, who trust his kingdom to be enough. Now, Jesus ties this all together in the story that he tells next. I actually want to just read the whole thing. This is Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. This is how he follows up this scene with this young man and the angst of the disciples. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day, and sent them into his vineyard. Now, quick note here, a denarius was a living wage. This was a day's worth of work. It was a very reasonable amount of money for a day's 
uh, a day's work of labor. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? No one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. Now when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Now watch what happens. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius, a day's wage. When those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who is hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? And so the last will be first and the first will be last. Now there's a ton that we could say about this story, but I want us to spend a few moments just looking at it through the eyes of the land owner. Looking at it through the eyes of the worker, I think there's a lot there for us to wrestle with, especially our struggle with fairness and justice and grace. But considering this story through the eyes of the landowner, I think we learn something very important about God and also about answers to these anxieties that we have of meaning and being our question of enoughness. It doesn't make any sense for a boss to play pay his employees the same amount of money for different amounts of work, right? It's not good business practice. It's not fair to the folks who work eight hours to receive the same wage as those who work one. But everyone is paid, right? And everyone is paid enough. No one in this story is underpaid. We begin to see here a, a, a glimpse of the deep compassion of the landlord, he sees these workers standing around with nothing to do. And so he gives them something to do. He provides them with this living wage. And this, for us, is a picture of God's great grace. Now, it's fascinating about this story, like many of Jesus' stories, is that it doesn't have a neat and tidy ending, right? It ends with these two big questions that the landowner asks. And then this repeat of the inversion principle. The last will be first and the first will be last. So the question comes back on us. How will we respond to the grace and compassion of the landowner? How do we respond to the grace and compassion of God? There is no formula or checklist. There is no measurement that will ever fully satisfy the lack. That will be able to answer fully our questions, our anxieties of meaning and being. Only grace answers that. Only grace fills that vacuum of enough. This is really good news for us. It's good news for our souls. Grace 
the economy of the kingdom of heaven, it takes us off this wheel of enoughness. It demonstrates that we are equal and loved and worthy because God loves us and is extremely generous towards us. Philip Yancey writes, grace means there's nothing I can do to make God love me more and nothing I can do to make God love me less. Grace teaches us that God loves because of who God is, not because of who we are. Now, a moment of confession. I, I struggled this week to know where to land with this teaching. There's a lot of things here for us to continue to wrestle with. And so the question for me was, you know, do we press into the, that first scene and our, our desire to be productive and efficient? Do we talk more about the inefficiency of the kingdom of heaven? Or do we go deeper into how hard it is for the, the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? There's no easy way to kind of get around that statement. Or is this a week where we simply remind ourselves, sit with the truth of God's grace, God's scandalous grace? These are all wonderful places to land. Here's the thing, though, that has stuck with me the most. It's the image of this young man walking away from his encounter with Jesus and sadness. Now, a better translation of the, the word there is actually grieving. This isn't like, oh, bummer, I have to sell my stuff. Uh, this is a deep grief that he is feeling as he walks away. And here's the thing, we, we don't actually know what happens with this guy. He might be leaving in grief knowing that what lies ahead for him is going to be really painful. That this process of selling all of his stuff is going to take a chunk out of him, right? That's not going to be an easy thing to do. Destroying his idols, reorienting his identity into a new, uh, in a new grounding, that's going to be a hard process. Maybe he's grieving that process. Or maybe he's grieving because he knows he can't do it. We don't know. Either way, a very haunting picture, right? Very haunting picture. Haunting because this has been me at different times in my life. Oh, my goodness, this is the cost? I didn't sign up for this. I don't want to do this. It's a haunting picture because I've seen this play out in so many lives. I think this image of this young man walking away sad represents a deep misunderstanding of Jesus and the good news of his kingdom. So the young man comes seeking affirmation, which Jesus does offer, but then he gets way more than he bargained for, right? He gets this invitation to transformation. The good news, the gospel, is both affirming and transforming. The theological words here are salvation and sanctification. Affirmation in that this salvation, this redemption is free. There's nothing that you can do to earn this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You don't have to clean up your act. We don't go around earning spiritual points to make ourselves more worthy to God. This gift is free. This grace is free. You are loved and worthy simply because God loves you and finds you worthy. I love that phrase in the story that Jesus tells, you have made us equal. 
That's beautiful, right? That's grace. That's good news for each of us. But affirmation is not the end of the story. The young man, I think, wants Jesus to sprinkle a little blessing on the life that he's already living. Be told, everything's good. Just, just keep doing what you're doing. It's fine. Never have to change anything about how he actually lives. But the good news, even though it might be painful at some level, the good news of Jesus, it changes everything about how we live. It completely reorients our life around a different new reality. It changes the ways that we hold and value our time, our money, our education, our jobs, our relationships. It changes everything. Now Jesus, in this scene, so gentle with this young man, engages his conversation, engages uh, the questions. And he doesn't chase him down or berate him when he leaves. But he also doesn't shy away from telling him the truth. Sell your stuff and follow me. Destroy your idols and follow me. We want the affirmation, but we reject the transformation. Affirmation feels good, right? But transformation can be painful. And yet the transformation is where the life is. It's where the adventure is. It's where our faith can grow and flourish. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. The invitation is not to stay where we are, but to go, to become, to be transformed. You are a new creation. So a couple questions for us, just real simple questions. Number one, are you in Christ? Have you accepted the gift of this scandalous, generous grace? And the second question is about that process of transformation. Have you turned away sad or are you stepping into that adventure? Allowing that new creation to be formed in you. Have you accepted the gift of grace and are you being transformed? Let's pray. Father, there is, a, again, just a ton here for us to, to sit with, to chew on, to wrestle through, to process. And for those who need to um, sit with the issue of productivity, the inefficiency of the kingdom, may they do that this morning. May they choose to find their identity in you and not in what they can accomplish or get done. For some of us, the, the, the pursuit of wealth or the wealth that we have accumulated, it's got a hold on us. It, it is in the way of being able to follow you fully. That's a hard truth. It's how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Some of us, we may need to wrestle more with that today. For others, the, the idea of grace, the, the upside-down nature, the inversion principle of the kingdom, that the last are first and the first are last, it's hard to comprehend what that means, that you would pay everyone the same wage, that it's not about what we can earn or, again, what we can do for you, but simply about who you are, how you have loved us and lavished us with your grace and your mercy. 
So there's kind of those three things for us to sit with this morning, God, but especially this image of the young man walking away sad, God. Maybe there is a thing in front of us that we know we need to do, uh, an idol we know that we need to destroy, uh, an adventure of transformation that we've been hesitant to step into. I pray this morning, even right now in this moment, would be an opportunity for us to say, I'm ready. To, to follow with joy where you will lead us, even if it's hard and even if it requires us to do difficult things. Your kingdom is better. The good news of Jesus is better than any other option to answer these questions of enoughness, of meaning and being. And for that, God, we are so deeply, deeply grateful this morning. We pray all of this now in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. taking a few minutes to um, kind of be in silence, to just listen to the Holy Spirit, listen to God, reflect on what we've heard this morning. Um, I would encourage you in those couple minutes, really think through what Pastor Steve has talked about, what the Holy Spirit has revealed through Scripture this morning. You know, how is it that you walk away from your encounter with God? Are you able and willing to accept the scandal of grace and accept the cost of following God, knowing that there is a cost, it is uncomfortable, but there's also a great reward of knowing God so much better, knowing Christ. And so we'd encourage you um, really to take advantage of the couple of minutes to be still, to be unproductive, um, and allow the Holy Spirit to lead you in truth. If you put your faith in Christ, we invite you to celebrate communion. The Bible tells us that we should do this regularly as a way of remembering the amazing grace that God extends to us, the sacrifice that Christ made for us on the cross, taking our place so that we could know God more. The way that we do this here at Discovery is we have two tables here at the front of the stage, two at the middle of the theater, and there you'll find bread that represents the body of Christ that was broken for us. Uh, and you'll also find juice that represents blood, his blood that was shed for us. And um, you just dip the, the bread into the juice and you can take it right there. You can go back to your seat and spend more time reflecting. But um, when you're ready, we invite you to celebrate that work that Christ did um, and to remember what he did for you. And then we invite you um, to stand and worship with us, to lift your hands and surrender, to allow the Holy Spirit to fill you, to refresh you, to rejuvenate you um, so that you can go out and help others discover the good news of Jesus. So for the next couple of minutes, we just invite you to to sit and be still and be with God.